Psalm 44 is where we'll be this morning. Psalm 44. Have you ever been to a sporting event where the home team wins, and at the end, they will gather together somewhere, usually with some of the crowd, and they will sing a song together. Usually it's like their fight song or something like that, their school song, uh, and they sing it in triumph, don't they? Uh, there's a bunch of joy taking place, and they sing it loud and proud. There's actually psalms that we have that are similar to this that Israel would sing when they were victorious in battle. Psalm 98 is, is one of those. You can look at that later if you'd like. Psalm 98 is one of those that they would sing this victory psalm together of, of the good that God has done for them and letting them see victory over their foes or over their enemies. Yet, when we go to that same sporting event, as one team is standing with their uh, crowd singing, there's another team with their head down walking back to the bus, whatever it might be. I always get so annoyed at my wife during March Madness, which is the college basketball tournament, which is my favorite time of the year. She always feels so bad for the team that lost. And I'm like, they lost. Don't feel bad for them. They lost. That's their fault. Be happy for the team that won. They are moving on. She's like, oh, I'm just so sad for those kids. They might not play again. They should have played better. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. <clears throat> But we feel that way, don't we? And we see that. We see the losing team. And most of the time, most of the time, that losing team does not shout for victory. They don't go over to their crowd and sing a song together. Instead, they just leave in the midst of defeat. And I'm sure in your life, you've experienced both of these. Times of joy, of triumph, times of sadness, of defeat. Times when you wanted to sing and were excited and other times where that was the last thing on your mind, the last thing that you would want to do. Today in our psalm, Psalm 44, what we have is we have from Israel a song of defeat. The writer writes this after some sort of great defeat for the nation. There seems to be a lot of uncertainty amongst the people. And in fact, uh, this psalm is actually written in a way uh, an antiphonal, so an antiphonally, where it seems like uh, the king will sing or the writer will sing in a, in a singular form, talking about himself, but then it seems like there's a response in the plural form. So the king would sing this uh, part in a singular part, and then the people would respond in this plural part. But it definitely is a song of, of defeat, of questioning, of uncertainty. And again, that kind of goes against what we think about uh, in a battle. Why would the losing team come and sing? Well, there's four sections to this psalm I want us to look at. The first one's in verse 1 through 8. And here in verse 1 through 8, the nation praises God throughout all generations. In verses 9 through 16, the nation suffers shame and disgrace. In verses 17 to 22, suffering continues despite faithfulness to God. And then at the end, verses 23 to 26, the nation calls on God for deliverance. I want to read this in sections today and look at each section uh, separately the best that we can. So let's first look at verses 1 through 8 of Psalm 44. It says, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand 
drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did they own arm did nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm, and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Again, in this section, we see the nation praise God for what he has done throughout the generations. And in verses 1 through 3, the author here is praising God because of his faithfulness to these past generations. And it's important to notice, first of all, how the people of Israel seem to be faithful to teach to their children the works of God that he had done amongst their people. It seems as if Israel did a pretty good job in obeying the command that God had given them in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 through 10. I want to remind you of what this says. It says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The history of this people was, was known, and it was understood. And it seems as if generation after generation was faithful to teach this to their children and to their grandchildren. To say, this is what God has done for our family. This is what God has done for our nation. And Israel as a whole knew this and they understood this. I think it's an important thing for us to remember to do this as well in our homes and our families. We're reminding our kids, our grandchildren of the faithfulness of God to our families, and what he has done in them. But Israel seemed to know. They knew God was the one who drove out the nations. They knew it was God who planted them in their own land. They knew it was God that had set them free. It wasn't of their own doing, it was God who fought for them, right? And he did this, why? Look at verse three. Why did God do this? Because he delighted in them, it says at the end of verse three. For you delighted in them. And this is important. God did this for Israel because he loved them and he took delight in loving them. In verses four through eight, the author says this, right? He says, you delighted in them. And it's, again, this would be the king yelling this in verse four. Notice the king shouts in verse 4, God is the king. You are my king, O God, he says. And there is no God but the living God. He references that. Living God in the eyes of the king. He knows this. Not the gods of the nations, but in, in the living God of Israel. And this is who the, the king is praising. And the author of this psalm is praising. And then in verses 5 through 7, the people and the king what do they do? They acknowledge that it's God who is fighting for them still. It's not just happened in the past, but still at this moment, it's saying it's, it's God who fights for us. It's God who wins the wars. Though they may fight, though they may plan, though they may set up systems, they are understanding, and the king is acknowledging in this psalm, it is God who gives victory in all these things. And this is a very important recognition for the people of God. And it still remains for us today. The sovereignty of God, the purpose of God in all things of life 
is something that we must recognize and we must be willing to submit to. Too often we don't want to submit to that. We like to take the credit. I graduated from high school with honors. I went to this college. I got into that college. I went for this degree. I did well in that. I went to the interviews. I got the job. I work hard. I succeed. I have what I have because of me. As Christians, we know that that's not how this works. We know that it's God who gives all good things. Nothing good comes unless it comes from God. That is the only way. And so at any second, the whole systems that we set up, all the plans that we have can unravel in a moment. I mean, we even see this with Joshua as he's trying to conquer these lands. All it takes for them for a second is to trust in themselves. And what happens? They get driven out. And it's embarrassing. But it's because they started to trust in themselves. And so the, the writer here of this psalm is saying, we are not trusting in ourselves. We know it is you, God, who wins all the victories for us. And at this point in the psalm, in verses 1 through 8, it seems as if this is a psalm of victory, doesn't it? I'm going to be saying, why were you talking about this as a psalm of defeat? In verses 1 through 8, this sounds fantastic. But what we're going to see in the next section is a dramatic change take place. And how can such a change take place? Well, it's important to remember that even during trials, during difficulties, during the struggles of life, God still deserves to be praised. And this is where this psalmist was. There was struggles going on, but yet he starts the psalm with praise and adoration of God. He remembers the goodness of God in the past, even though he might not be feeling it in the present. But he knows that God is good, and he wants to remind the people of that. He wants to remind himself of that. And so we must be willing to do the same, even during the darkest of times, committing ourselves to praise and to worship God. I was thinking about that as we sing this song. How great is our God? It's a question. How great is our God? And as you sing that song, maybe some of you, and what you're going through in your life right now, you might be thinking, I don't know if it's that great. Others, maybe things are going good right now, and you think God is, God is great. You sing that. How great is our God? And you're thinking, he is awesome. But others could struggle through singing that because of just circumstances in life and things that you're going through. I want you to know that that's where this psalmist is as well. So let's continue on, verses 9 through 16. We have this great praise. Verse 8, in God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Verse 9, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. Here we see the shame and the disgrace of a nation. And this dramatic shift of mood, the psalmist points to God, what? For their current position in life. He's just laying out before God what is going on. And I, 
I tried to write these down and summarize them the best I can in this list that he puts here. But the psalmist says, they've been disgraced. Their armies are deserted by God. Their enemies have taken their spoils from them. They are like sheep for the slaughter, scattered amongst the nations, sold for a low price and enslaved with no cost whatsoever, taunted and scorned amongst their neighbors. They are a laughingstock among the peoples, disgraced all day long, and shame covered in front of their enemies over and over and over again. What a horrible list to describe your life. What a horrible list to describe your situation, your circumstances, the way you view how you are at this moment. And all of this, notice, the psalmist contributes to who? To God. He said there in verse 9, you have rejected us. He puts all this on the shoulders of God, saying it is you that have done this. You have sold us for nothing. You have scattered us among the people. We're covered in this shame because of you. And the question that lingers, and the question that maybe lingers in some of your minds today, is why would God abandon us? If he was there for all the past generations, if God delighted in his people so much that he would pour out these blessings, why does he not delight in us today? Where is the same delight that they got to live in, that they got to feel, that they got to uh, experience? Why don't we experience that? What is it? And how can we experience it? This is the question that the psalmist is asking. This is the question that maybe you are asking. It's almost as if the psalmist is asking the exact same question that the ungodly were asking last week, if you remember in Psalm 42 and 43. Where is your God? Remember, that was the question the ungodly asked to the godly. Where is your God when you're going through this? And it seems as if this is what the psalmist is asking of himself now and what the nation is asking. God, where are you? In past generations, you proved yourself. Where is it today? The answer would seem to be, at least in my mind, well, God is punishing you for sin. God is punishing the nation for sin. We know that this is what God would do with Israel over and over again. They would not keep their part of the covenant. God would discipline them and then draw them back to himself over and over again. Because we know this was God's covenant. If you obey my commands, I will be your God. And so maybe what's happening is they're not obeying him. Maybe, finally, all of their sin has caught up to them. Maybe that is the answer. Let's see what goes on in verses 17 to 22. The psalmist says, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's amazing. The psalmist cries out, we're asking this question, why is this happening? And again, 
my mind goes to because you're sinning. But the psalmist cries out here and says, it's not because of sin that we're facing this. We are not facing the abandonment of God because we haven't obeyed our part of the covenant. They say, we have not, obeyed, we have not disobeyed your covenant. The king and the people have been faithful to God, but it seems like God isn't keeping his end of the promise this time. The psalmist even seems to apply there at verses 20 through 21. He has the boldness to say, God, search my heart and know me. See that there is no sin in us. Yet you abandon us. Yet you do not go and fight with our armies. Yet it seems like you're not here. It seems like you do not care. So what is left is unknown reason. There's an unknown reason for why all this suffering, why all this hurt, why all this pain is taking place in the nation. In the past, after repentance would happen, God would pour out his blessings again to the people. Yet now, something different is happening. And it seems like this nation is left in a place of utter hopelessness. How do we return back to what we once were? Not an uncommon question for us to hear today about our own nation. Now, I don't want to compare Israel to America because there is no comparison there. Comparison would be Israel and the church. But I hear it in terms of America all the time. How can we return back? What can be done? What can happen? Or even in the churches today, how can we get back to how it used to be? How can it come back to this of what we had before what can we do for this to happen and for this to take place? Look at verses 23 to 26. The psalmist says in verse 23, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. In the midst of hopelessness, in the midst of a time when it feels like God is not around, what do the people of God do here? They call on God. This psalm does not end in the way we would want it to. We would love to see that all of a sudden God blesses them. We would want to see all of a sudden that victory happens, that victory takes place, but we're not given that. All we're given is that in the midst of this hurt, in the midst of this depression, in the midst of this anxiety, all this stuff that this nation is facing, all we get at the end is for them to cry out to God even more. We see no results in the end. We're left with the horrible anguish and pain for no real good reason. We don't hear God speak and say, it's because of this sin. See, with Joshua, you remember, I mentioned Joshua earlier, but you remember they had a great defeat. And what was it? There was sin in the camp. And all of a sudden, it got found out, the sin of Achan. Oh, he stole when he was told not to do. This is why we've been defeated. They got rid of Achan, got rid of his family, got rid of the stuff. And then what happened? Victory. Good moral story. Hey, we see results. At the end of Psalm 44, there are no results. It's just the people who feel abandoned and hopeless. Yet in the end, what they do is they still cry out for God. 
That, that phrase comes up again at the verse 26. Redeem us for the sake of what? Of your steadfast love. Your covenantal love. Your promises. The only thing that the people of God know to do in this moment is to cling to the promises of God. That's all that they have. They don't have answers for their problems. They don't even have a solution for their problems. The only place they know to go is to the promises of God and his steadfast love. Do you remember the hymn, Standing on the Promises of God? I remember singing that hymn so many times. There's a line in that hymn. It says, standing on the promises that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God, I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. That's what this nation is doing at this moment. All they have to do is stand on the promises of God. All they have to do is look at how God has been faithful in past generations because at the moment, they just don't see it. At the moment, they've just been defeated. They've just been crushed. They've just been destroyed. And that's all that they're feeling. That's all that they're experiencing. That's all that they understand. What do we do at times like this? Now, this is a psalm for a nation, so I don't necessarily want to just put it to yourself as an individual that was last week but what do we do as a people of God when we're left with no answers God why does it seem like the world is turning against us for so long we lived with such peace and relative acceptance and in fact encouragement to be the people of God in the place where we live but now it seems as if everybody's turning their back against us it seems like the simple, basic things that we always stood for that seem so simple to the outside world are being pushed against. And in fact, we're even being called someone who hates people because we stand on your promises. God, where are you? God, why is this happening? Why is this going on? We, we try to be faithful. We try to read your word. We, we try to be in church every week and worship you with fellow brothers and sisters. We're doing our best to teach our children your ways, but yet it seems as if everything is falling apart. Have you heard that before? Have you felt that in your inner being? Have you felt it deep down? Maybe not for yourself as an individual, but for the church as a whole. Or maybe the church feels this way as Psalm 44, as the writer would write. What do we do? Well, the conclusion of Psalm 44 is our same conclusion. The only thing we have is to continue to stand on the promises of God. Even when our answers are not ever given to us. Even when we may not understand what is happening and what is going on. And so when we look at this psalm, what does this psalm do for us today? The Israelites were confused, weren't they? Because they were not sinning, yet they were hurting. Well, there's a couple things. First is this. Israel was sinning. <laughs> they can declare all they want that they were not sinning, but sin was in their camp for sure. They were not guiltless, and they could not stand on that. And neither can you or I. We all have sin in our life. We all have struggles that we do, and we always will. But yet, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're not doing our best to be faithful. And so no doubt Israel probably was trying their best to be faithful. At least that's what the king is declaring here. That's what the people are singing back. We're doing our best to be faithful to you. 
Do you not see this, God? We do have to always recognize there is sin in our life. And we cannot get to the point. Don't let us get to the point as a church or as individual Christians to think, God, you owe me this one. No. God owes us nothing. We owe him everything because he's given us Jesus. We owe him everything because of, of Christ. And so we should not set back and say, God, you owe us this. But secondly, I'm reminded of what happened in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. This story came to my mind as I was reading this psalm and thinking about how it relates even to us. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And as his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. See, when they saw this man blind, the natural question was, what's the sin here? Was it him? Was it his parents? Who, who sinned? Because this wouldn't happen to him unless it was sin. And Jesus' answer is kind of astonishing. He's not blind because of sin. What do you mean? Well, why would God do this to him? Why would God be so mean to him to cause him to be blind if he didn't sin or if his parents didn't sin? Isn't this the God we serve? He strikes down the people who are mean? Isn't that what must have happened? No. But Jesus' answer isn't like it's a very comforting answer. Well, then why is this guy blind? So you all could see the work of God here in a moment. So this guy had to suffer? This guy had to suffer for this long, for this moment. So that at this moment, we could see you spit, put it on his eyes, and he comes, he comes and sees now? That's why he's struggled for all of his life? That seems unfair. Doesn't that seem unfair to us? Doesn't that seem unfair to you? Here's the problem. When it seems unfair to us, it's because we think we are the most important thing in this world. This guy was not the most important thing in this world. You are not the most important thing in this world. I'm not the most important thing in this world. The most important thing in this world is that God gets the glory that he is due at all times. And for this man, it meant for him to be blind for a while. Now he got his sight back, which was a blessing, which was a praise to God, which was an amazing miracle. But maybe, just maybe the difficulties that we face right now, that you face as an individual, that we face as churches, Maybe the difficulties we face at this moment is so that God gets glory. So that God's name can be known amongst the nations. So that God alone can be praised. Maybe what we're facing right now at this time is because we've been selfish to try to take all the glory. Maybe God is trying to redirect our focus. Trying to redirect our attention. to What really is important. I was also reminded of 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 31. This is also quoted in the Psalms as well. This is a good reminder for us as we face difficulty. 
In 2 Samuel twenty two thirty one, it says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. I think today we struggle with the sovereignty of God and we struggle with the plan of God because we don't always like the plan of God. But that's not our call. I would have loved probably to be born in the 60s-ish. Be raised in church. Be a part of a church that just seemed to be booming. Where everybody seemed to go. That was like the thing to do was to be a part of church life. To me, when I look back at those times, and some of you lived through those times, but to me, it seemed like an easy time to be a Christian. Now, you're laughing at me, I know, because that probably doesn't exist, the easy times. Seemed a lot easier to fill pews. Seemed a lot easier to get volunteers. Seemed a lot easier to share the gospel with your neighbor. They weren't going to be so mad about it. But yet, in God's great plan, I was born in 1982. I miss that time. I wasn't there for that. And I could get frustrated about that. I could say, man. The fact is, God's plan is a perfect plan. And I read that because, and I want us to know that because I understand when you walk into this room, when we all gather in this place, we hopefully all gather for the same purpose, to worship God, but we all come in here different. You face things this week that I haven't faced. I've faced things this week that you have not faced. We've all went through different things, different life circumstances, all these different stuff. But yet all of it has been a part of God's plan. And whether my week has been horrible and disruptive or whether my week has been great and just overflowing with blessings, I still, as a believer, have to say what Samuel says there, this God His way is perfect. It's perfect. And that's really what the psalmist of Psalm 44 is trying to get across. Life is horrible. We're doing our best to obey the commandments that God has given us, yet we are defeated in battle after battle. We are scattered amongst the nations. We've been sold into slavery. There seems to be no hope at all. God, will you wake up? God, will you rouse yourself up? Will you stay true to your covenantal promises, your steadfast love? And we get that answer in Romans chapter 8. You see, as people who've been through the Old Testament, we've been through the New Testament, we live after Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has rose again, Christ ascended on high. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We live through all of these things. We now, as the privilege of the New Testament church, get to look back and to know this truth. And we have the New Testament given to us, which sheds light on so much of the Old Testament for us. And this is one of the passages that does this. In Romans 8, chapters 31 through 39, I read these all the time. And it's just fitting here because it's quoted in Psalm 44. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now stop there because this is what Psalm 44 is all about. Everybody's against us. The whole world is against us and we constantly lose. We constantly fall. 
And Paul's going to have the gumption here to quote this psalm here. But this is why. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. There's the quote. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now before you try to tell me that we as a church have it worse than Paul and the church had it then, let me stop you. Because for another few centuries, it was illegal to be a Christian. These people were killed all the time. They constantly went to the stake for Jesus. They constantly were seeing their relatives being destroyed. They constantly were being pushed aside by family members because of their new faith in this, in this Jesus. If anybody knew what hurt and pain and could relate to Psalm 44, it was the man writing this. Yet he takes Psalms 44 and he takes one of the most difficult verses in Psalm 44. For, we are, for your sake we are being killed all day long. Where are you, God? We're being killed all day long. Do you not see your people being destroyed? Paul's response is, no. In all these things, in death, in persecution, in famine, in struggles, and whatever it is, we are more than conquerors. Why? Because God has answered with his steadfast love in the person of Jesus Christ. He's given us everything we need. You see, the Old Testament, they didn't have Jesus yet. And they're saying, God, where is your steadfast love? And this is God's answer. It's in my son, Jesus. And we have that. So you and I, today as believers, we cannot quote Psalm 44 the same way David did as he was writing this psalm. We cannot say, God, where are you? Because the answer is clear. As a believer, God is in you. As a believer, nothing separates you. No matter what we face as a church, no matter what we face as Christians, that is nothing. We are more than conquerors because of Jesus and what he has done. You see, to the world, they're winning. They're starting to encroach on the walls of the church. They're starting to scatter the sheep, right? People are running kind of frantic. That should never be the state of us as believers. Nothing can stop us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God because Jesus has done it all for us already. And we must cling to him. We must trust in him. We must 
put everything on him each and every day. And worship him and serve him and honor him and give him glory. That's what this psalm points us to. It points us to Christ. Remember last week, I said, as I read these psalms, remember that Jesus knew these psalms, that Jesus would sing these psalms, and that Jesus would teach these psalms. And at the end there, when the writer in verses 23 through 26 says, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? You picture Jesus reading this in the synagogue. Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. You can see Jesus saying, I'm awake. I'm here. And pretty soon you're going to see me rise up. I'm going to conquer all this. I'm going to conquer death. I'm going to conquer hell. I'm going to conquer sin forever. Forever. God heard you. God hears you, God loves you, God sustains you through the power of Christ. I don't know who needs to hear that this morning, but I'd have to think it's some of us today. God loves you so much, church, that he sent his only son into this world to die for you, for you. Don't let the insults, don't let the persecution don't let the embarrassment of this world shame you into thinking that God is gone and God does not love you. That is a lie from Satan. God desperately loves you so much. He loves you so much that his son would die in your place. And because of that, we are conquerors, more than conquerors, because of the love of God in our life. Let's bow together, let's pray. <clears throat> God, I thank you for this psalm. God, while it's difficult to read, I can't imagine being in the place of King David and that nation and what they were facing. Their nation being scattered like sheep to be slaughtered, imprisonment, slavery, shame and guilt all the time, seeming to have no answer. God, I'm thankful today I can read that in light of Christ and know that he is the answer. So God, I pray that as a church family, we would hold on to that. God, I pray that other churches would as well. Not just Monroe Missionary Baptist Church, but all the believing churches who trusted in Christ, who've been saved by your grace, that they would hold fast to your promises, to your steadfast love that remains on your people. God, help us to not be ashamed of the gospel. To understand that it's the power of God that works in our life to save us. And that it can save others as well. And so God, help us to be faithful. That even though the world pushes against us, to respond back to them, not with hatred, but with, the love, with your love. Telling them that while you're enemies of God, rebelling against God, know this, Jesus died for sinners. You too can be saved by his grace. By faith, you will believe and trust. God, help us to not be ashamed of that message. God, I pray for the Christian in here this morning who feels so beaten. Maybe it's because of things in their life that have happened, I don't know. Or maybe it's just because of the general struggles that we face in our world.
God, I pray that you would rouse their spirits. Where maybe they would cry out and say, awake, oh God, where maybe they would be woken up. You would help them to see the truth of your word and what you've done for us in Christ. And they would stand on the shoulders of the cornerstone, knowing that they cannot be shaken, they cannot be removed, they cannot be destroyed, because they are not the ones that hold themselves up. It's you that has them in your strong right arm. So God, I pray that this morning this would be an encouragement to them, to those who need it. God, I pray for those people here this morning who are not your children. They haven't by faith trusted in you. God, I pray that they would. They would see it's a losing battle in this world. That sin will be dealt with one way or the other, either through the blood of Christ or through the wrath of God for eternity. And so God, I pray that you would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel message. That they would trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And God, again, help us as a church to hold fast to your promises and your steadfast love. God, as we sing this song here at the end, as always, we want to worship you in singing it. But we also want to respond to your word. Now that we've heard your word preached, I pray that we would respond how we should. God, for some, maybe instead of singing, they need to pray. Seek forgiveness of sin. or Come to you for something. God, for others, maybe it is the singing. They need to praise you and to worship you. God, just help us to respond how we need to. Now we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.